This is Jane Lovis. I'm your host of Leadership Reimagined. So please join me today in welcoming Mark Grabin. Mark is a management consultant where he focuses on leadership, quality improvement, process improvement, and patient safety. He also works with leaders to create a culture of continuous improvement. And it's this Mark's background that makes him un- really unique as a management consultant. He's an engineer with an MBA who spent 10 years working in manufacturing. And then in 2005, he had the opportunity to start doing similar improvement work in healthcare. He's also written two award-winning books on continuous improvement for the healthcare industry. The first one, Lean Hospitals, and then Healthcare Kaizen. In addition to one aimed at the broader business audience titled Measures of Success, React Less, lead better, improve more. Now he's added to his own podcast, a podcast titled My Biggest Mistake. And Mark, I have to say, that's a great topic for a podcast. And so I'm going to ask you, what's your biggest mistake? Well, so Jane, thank you um, for having me here with you today. I, I, I hate to start this off by pointing out a minor mistake. Uh, the podcast is called My Favorite Mistake. Oh, which, is it really? Ow. Yeah. Ah. It's, that's a, that's a, it's a different conversation with people than it would be if we were talking about their biggest mistakes. You know, uh, biggest mistakes might be sad. Favorite mistakes are, you know, mistakes that we learn from and they're less traumatic. Ah, absolutely. I totally agree. And so what's your favorite mistake that you've learned the most from? <laughs> You know, it's interesting having the tables turned on me a little bit and getting that question. You know, I've thought about this a lot. And one story that I've shared, um, it was, uh, it's a story I've shared in a, a chapter of a anthology book that I was the editor and publisher of a book called um, Practicing Lean. You know, and I, I think back to, you know, earlier in my career, when as an engineer, I was in a position and, and you know, I take ownership of my behavior, but the organizations I was a part of also put me in this position of basically um, coming in as some sort of internal improvement expert, coming in, getting involved in other people's work. I mean, it was the organization I was a part of, but, you know, coming in and, and basically being the expert who came up with a better way and then tried to force it on people. And I've you know, learned the hard way that just doesn't work. Um, you, you have to engage people and you have to involve them and you can't come in as, you know, some sort of lone wolf. So I've learned firsthand, you know, even if an organization is sort of pressuring you and saying, well, it would be faster if you just came in and gave the answer. Like I, I can say no to that now as an external consultant. I can say that might seem faster, but it doesn't work. So, you know, one of my favorite mistakes that I often think back to um, you know, it's a, a very specific situation. The details of it, I think, aren't important. But, you know, that manufacturing company where, you know, people were understandably irritated with me coming in um, who wasn't fully part of the team and, you know, sort of trying to force a better way on them. So I've, I've definitely learned from that. I try to make sure that I'm not in a position where I'm pressured to operate that way again. Mm-hmm. I so get that. I've had similar experiences with going in to projects that have been in chaos. And, you know, really the goal is to create it so that the project can move forward and that everybody's, you know, working together. And 
there's a lot of that. Just go in and tell them what to do. Right. And that seems like the right answer, except it's really a short term answer because if it, doesn't it works if, if it if works it, at all in the short term. Yeah, exactly. So thank you for for sharing your favorite mistake with, <laughs> sure. with us. And I see that as, you know, leading into our conversation on leadership reimagined and what it's going to take for leaders going into the future as, you know, we're in the midst of this, as we record this in the midst of COVID, the shutdown lockdowns right now, actually a second increase, some of the highest numbers. And, you know, there are good things coming out of this in spite of and in addition to all the trauma and chaos. And I think in leadership, there's some real, real things to be, you know, looked at and that get to be reimagined coming out of this. What would you say is one of, especially coming from continuous improvement? Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, a couple of thoughts come to mind. You know, one is I think when it's a crisis mode, people, leaders tend to fall back onto what's comfortable to them. And so I've, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of leaders and, and, and people in healthcare who coming up uh, before March of 2020 would have had intent on changing their leadership style. They would have wanted to change the culture, to create a culture of engagement and continuous improvement. But then the pandemic hits. And some of those leaders would say basically, okay, well, we don't have time for that now. Hospitals go into, you know, what they might call, uh, you know, command center mode. Mm -hmm. Think what that name implies, you know, that the executives in the name of speed are going to be basically um, maybe benevolent technocratic dictators. (laughs) We're just going to tell people what to do. Um, And that's problematic. Like, again, it seems more, well, it seems more efficient. It might seem more effective or leaders might say, well, but I have no choice. I know this isn't ideal, but I have no choice. The thing is, they do have a choice. You know, I've talked to, um, and I've, I've sometimes interviewed on different podcasts that I host, leaders who leaned in, if you will, to borrow the Sheryl Sandberg, you know, expression of saying, all right, now that we've got this time of uncertainty and chaos and um, our organization needs to be more nimble and more agile, the only way to really do that is by engaging the people who do the work and, and not forcing answers in a top-down way. So, you know, I think that the organizations that had that foundation of continuous improvement have uh, been more adaptive. I, I just interviewed two executives from a hospital in New York City where they said because of six years of hard work of trying to build that culture of improvement, they went through so many cycles of iteration and improvement and trying things about, you know, setting up um, additional ICU space and, and how do you have visibility to the patient without having to go inside the room. You know, they shared examples of all the different things they tried. It reminded me almost of the old Thomas Edison quote, which I'm going to paraphrase and butcher of, you know, I didn't fail. I just just, just, just discovered all the ways that it didn't work until I found right. one that did. And, you know, that organization is applying the same concept um, to setting up their mass vaccination process. And there's, I think this key difference, leadership mindset, the difference between saying, I know the answer and I'm going to force it on others, as opposed to saying, I've got an idea. I have a hypothesis. Let's get input from others. Let's improve our proposed way of doing things. And then the most important thing is let's go actually test it 
and evaluate to see how it works. There, there's that difference again between knowing the answer and, and being more of a scientist and going and discovering something through action. I really like that, the discovery part of it. And sometimes it's also, it's real tempting to pretend you're in but just want to lead people to your and you know, I, I've secretly <laughs> right. got the answer and I'm just going to keep nudging everybody in that direction as opposed to just yeah. saying, hey, I'm just throwing this answer out. Let's see where it takes <laughs> us, what we can can come up with. Yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, in my experience, so leaders still have to be careful you know, that, they, that they've created a safe environment when they say, well, I'm just going to throw this out there. Right. Do people feel safe in speaking up or disagreeing? Like sometimes that leader suggestion too firmly anchors the team in that as opposed to really doing broader brainstorming first. And yeah, you're right. Like you said, um, we're not trying to manipulate people to do <laughs> what we wanted. Like when I hear a leader say, I want people to feel like they had input. I, I try to call time out. Like it, this is not a feeling. It either either they do have input or they don't. Right. It's not. It's not about feeling like they did. Yeah, that's a, that's great. I love I love that. We want people to feel included. We want people to feel that they're important. <laughs> they're. It's like they either they they are important or they're not. What they feel about it is right. less important. <laughs> Yeah. I, I want people to feel like they were heard. Well, no, actually hear them. <laughs> yeah. That's something that also really, um, you know, needs um, some visibility now with, especially now in the, in the medical field and in, in hospitals, you, there's less remote teamwork, whereas a lot of, you know, my background comes from technology and, and mm-hmm. there's so much now, almost everybody that I know, is working remote. And yet you've got, so, so on one hand, two very different populations of employees, and yet there's still importance of ensuring that they are, are included. They are empowered. Cause I know I see a lot, just healthcare workers, not feeling heard, included, empowered. Mm-hmm. It's like, right. no, just, just do your job. Right. To bring us back, we were we were talking about the the similarities and the differences in healthcare and technology teams with the remote versus not remote, but the need to feel included and heard and empowered in what's yeah. going on. Yeah. Um. So one thing that seems to be happening in healthcare right now, um, you've got the frontline caregivers who are, um, you know, in wearing all sorts of extra personal protective equipment. Hopefully, you know, they have the right um, PPE available for them. Um, they, they, you know, they have to do their work um, there physically on site with the patients. And then you have, um, you know, the managers and, and different leaders and internal process improvement people, you know, where it's um, less critical for them to actually physically be there. And, they, you know, there could be, you know, risk of them, of course, um, catching COVID. So a lot of them are um, working from home. So you've got this um, unusual hybrid model. And then you have external consultants like me. I've been home um, for over 10 months now. I haven't set foot in a hospital or healthcare facility in 10 months. But you know, I've been a, in a position of um, doing some virtual coaching with organizations. So you know, there, there are you know, a lot more instances now of um, especially those internal process improvement consultants having to help lead and facilitate things via Zoom meeting. 
um, which is definitely a challenge. It's, it's difficult to do. But then even, you know, the, the healthcare professionals who might normally get together and do a daily 10-minute huddle or a stand-up meeting where they, in the past, would gather around uh, a physical whiteboard, they are distancing themselves. Um, and a lot of these organizations are now doing a virtual huddle um, for the people who are on site even. Mm. And they're using, um, they're using Zoom or like some organizations use, uh, I'm involved in a technology company called Kinexus that has software that helps people facilitate improvement work when they can't be together, you know, writing things on a physical whiteboard or physical post-it notes. Um, you know, so the, the pandemic has forced people to adapt. Um, you know, sometimes it just creates all sorts of challenges. And then, you know, some, sometimes people learn, I think particularly the external consultants like myself um, get more comfortable with coaching people remotely. Where in the past, I have, you know, colleagues of mine who in March and April were very adamant of like, well, I can't do my type of work remotely. It always has to be done on site. So either out of necessity and or they're adapting to the reality, they've come around to learn that, yeah, you actually can do a lot remotely. Mm-hmm. And now thinking to a day where, um, the pandemic is behind us. A lot of people are going to start questioning and challenging like, well, why don't we keep doing things remotely? Or maybe instead of being on site with you every week, maybe I come on site one week a month and then provide um, virtual coaching uh, from home the rest of the time. Because you know, there's, there's effectiveness and then there's also quality of life mm-hmm. things to think about as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's that we're seeing that, that there's, there's structures that need to be put in place that are being created because, you know, if this, had, if, if the pandemic had only lasted, you know, like three to six months, we would have probably some of these things might've happened, but not to the level that they're really beginning because right now there's still a lot of who knows when. So you right. really have to look at leaders have to look at, we need to stay productive People need, we need people to stay productive and engaged. So how can we make that happen? I totally agree that originally, because I have had the same thing. I, I thought, oh, some of my work, I really need to be there with my clients. You know, right? they need my, my physical presence there. And to find out that, I mean, in some respects, it just, it opens up the world in a, in a bigger space for for mm-hmm. consultants, because it really is it's like, no, I don't need to be there. I've had to modify things and, and work with people a little bit differently, but it's a real opportunity to look and find out what's really needed. Right. And, you know, I think consultants have gotten more comfortable with technology and then the clients likewise. Mm-hmm. So it creates, um, an, in a way, you know, hopefully mostly positive, a new normal instead of going back to the way it was. And like with the work I do, one of the phrases that's sort of a red flag that I try to coach people out of is, you know, when we're looking at how the work is done in healthcare and somebody says, well, that's the way we've always done it. <laughs> that's a point where we can call time out. And it doesn't mean it's bad, but it's worth evaluating. Right. There have been changes even before the pandemic. There's been changes in all kinds of, you know, ways um, in different technologies in, you know, even just the expense of living in places where you can be convenient to work or, or the impact of, you know, commuting and the time you spend 
So by being willing to, to look at some of these different ways, I mean, in healthcare, something that's, that's really opened up has been telemed. Absolutely. I mean, that was like, for the longest time, a verboten conversation. So, and, and that wasn't a technology issue. That was more of a payment or reimbursement issue. It wasn't that we couldn't do it. Speaking a uh, health system couldn't do it. It's more of like, well, we don't really have a pressing need to until the pandemic. Right. And I've, I've heard a couple of different healthcare organizations say roughly um, our five-year IT telemedicine roadmap turned into a two-week project because <laughs> they were motivated. And that's how it comes to a lot of change, right? Whether it comes to, to losing weight or doing some sort of change as an organization, it's not enough to know how to do it. Like the motivation, the reasons for change have to outweigh the reasons to stay in, in the status quo. Oh, that, that, yeah, that is so true because we just, as human beings, we want to just keep going the way things are going. It's comfortable. It's yeah. safe. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, people sort of, uh, you know, there's the expression that grass, well, no, what, what is the expression? The grass isn't always greener on the other side. Right. So there's that we're, we're sort of conditioned some point of like, well, just gut it out and stick with what you know. What's the other expression? The devil you know versus yeah. the devil you don't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, mindsets like that certainly sort of keep people in the status quo. Right. We're comfortable with it. It's easy. We know how to do it. Just our, our kind of aversion to, for many people to change, mm-hmm. change anything. And, and then all of a sudden something, some kind of eruption happens and the impetus is there to change. And then it's amazing how quickly we can change. Yeah. And I think back to, you know, the story I told my favorite mistake about um, the last manufacturing company that I worked for full time. You know, there, there are lessons looking back on that. Um, uh, I think it's, it's a fact of life. Change is a process. Mm-hmm. Change is difficult, even when it's viewed as positive. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think of um, the, the frontline production workers that that I was interacting with, like they they could have agreed on some level, like logically, they could have agreed with what I was proposing. And they would say, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Well, it doesn't mean it's like flipping a light switch to say, oh, I wholeheartedly embrace this new way of doing things. Right. Because people are complicated. And, and, and one thing, you know, I've been exposed to in healthcare is a better understanding of um, the psychology of change. Mm-hmm. In, in how we work with people and being uh, being patient and not being too quick to write someone off as being, quote unquote, resistant to change. Mm-hmm. We've got to help guide them through it. We've got to be um, a coach, if not a counselor, to help understand, help help people understand their commitment to change and how can they strengthen that commitment to change to, to where, again, like the reasons and this isn't all just logical, right? There's emotions involved, of course, too. But um, the reasons to change outweigh the reasons not to change. That's the tipping point you have to try to help people get to. Right. And telling people once doesn't get them there. No, no. It's, you know, you have to be sick and tired of telling people, of sharing why this change is important before there's any chance that you're even close to that tipping point. Yeah. And I mean, one other thing I've learned to do, and I think sort of in my progression, like, you know, the, I would say, you know, the clumsiest form of change management is telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. 
then I think a little bit less clumsy and well-intended is to tell people why. Um, you know, I think one of the other lessons that come from, comes from counseling is that instead of telling people why they should change, you have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. And there's this language used about evoking change and asking. And, and I'd sort of intuitively stumbled upon some of this in my healthcare consulting work of being brought into a department in a hospital where you know, the departmental director certainly had a vision of what needed to be improved and maybe vaguely how. And, you know, something struck me uh, you know, of coming in and just basically having a really open-ended conversation with the team and, and asking them, why do you think like, why, I'm here as a resource for 12 weeks? What should we work on? Why is that important to you? And guess what? There was probably about 80% overlap between what the departmental director said and what the frontline employees said. But the fact that they said it and they were bringing it up created ownership and commitment to try to make change work out to be positive instead of the dynamic where people say, well, okay, I'll try your idea and we'll see if it works. Well, like there's just as much motivation for people to say, eh, I tried it and it didn't work. Instead of we tried it, it'd be better if, and then, you know, figuring out in an iterative way how to make it even better. So mm-hmm. we can, we, we don't even have to tell on the why so much. I've, I've learned that we can actually uh, draw that out of people. And, and again, there might be some of it where then the departmental director gives some input and says, well, I think we should also consider such and such. But when that's incremental to what the team came up with on their own, then I think that's, that's more easily accepted. Because then, again, we've moved from the situation of instead of feeling like they were being heard, they were actually being heard. And we were um, demonstrating that by moving forward based on what they said was important. Right. And so often, for so many changes, they're, you know, the team is the one that's doing the work. And they know what, they already have an idea of what the challenges are what could be improved, what could be changed. So by bringing them in as the solution, also the finders of the solution, the creators of the solution, you know, everybody loves to be a creator of a solution as opposed to having, being told what to do. Yeah. And I, you know, I think of, there's a a quote from uh, Meg Wheatley, an author, and, and, you know, she, I might be slightly paraphrasing, but she's saying, you know, people says people own what they create. Yep. Um, and, and there's another, there's a management professor, the late Peter Schultes, who, who said, basically, uh, people don't resist change. They resist being changed. Oh, I like that. I've found that to be so true in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I, I mean, I really get that when, when you're being told to change, even if it's a process you're doing, the implication is that you're doing something wrong. I'm doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm part of the solution to create the change, then I have ownership of it. Yeah. And, and we can also engage um, the people who do the work in understanding and framing the problem statement. Mm-hmm. So we could help people identify you know, the customer requires, the customer wants uh, 100% on-time delivery, whether that's a product we're manufacturing or um, a lab result that comes out of uh, a tube of blood. Right. Uh, you know, the, 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 the customer need 
is 100% on-time delivery, um, you know, the team can look at data and identify, you know, for example, let's say, well, current, today we, um, we're seeing 70% on-time delivery. And we can have that conversation, um, you know, hopefully, you know, in, in, in a way, um, you know, that, that's blame-free. We're just looking at, at facts. And, you know, I mean, to have a conversation like that requires trust, Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure. And there, there are, uh, I think, parallels to the stages of grief I've seen where you could state fact. And so, you know, as, as an engineer, you know, I'm, I'm pretty quantitative <laughs> and I'd say, well, it is a fact. There is a difference between 70% and 100%. We've identified that. Now let's move forward. I'm like, wait a minute. No, sometimes the, the people doing the work need to grieve that. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they feel embarrassed or, they feel ashamed that they haven't fixed that yet. So especially in healthcare where people care so deeply about what they do, sometimes you have to let people process and, and come to grips with the fact that we're underperforming and um, you know, we, we need to not blame them. And, and we need to make sure that maybe this is one difference where I could say, I'm not blaming you. Or I mean, I wouldn't, I, w- I might not say it. Like I might be doing things that aren't blaming and people still might feel blamed. Mm-hmm. That might be a case where the feeling matters uh, as much as, as the reality. Um, right. Yeah. Because you know, people will often put that blame upon themselves, even if I'm not doing it as a coach or facilitator. Right. That's true. And, and you're right. And then letting them have time to deal with that yes. and have conversations about that. And, you know, it all, it all comes down ultimately, to the conversations that we have with people. It does. And I think you said it perfectly. It takes time and it takes conversations. And, you know, one lesson I've learned, um, I've never worked for Toyota, but when I started my career in the auto industry and then, you know, with the work I do related to lean and continuous improvement, I have a lot of former uh, Toyota people who have mentored me. And and there's this Toyotaism that says, go slow to go fast. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies to all sorts of things, including change management. As, as, as you were saying, Jane, it takes time. We need to have conversations. Building that alignment and in and, and, and agreement takes time. But then once you get it, you can actually move forward uh, more quickly and you're, you're more likely to keep going forward. Yeah. And if you, if you write, again, it comes back to that question of, well, it seems faster to just tell people what to do. It's faster, but it doesn't work. Right. So we don't want to go fast to struggle. Right. Um, sometimes you've got to put that work in up front. So then you can, when it comes time, when, when there's agreement around why we need to change and we have that commitment to change, and then we can talk about what to do, then we can get alignment and move forward very quickly. Exactly. It's, yeah, I've heard that same. In fact, I use that quote a lot. I, I got it from race car drivers, you know, coming into the, into a, into a curve, coming into the curve, it's slow down to go fast. Yeah, I, I got to take a, a, a drive, a kind of an amateur. Oh yeah, driving race, driving course. When I used to live in Phoenix, it was a gift for my thirtieth birthday. And yeah, that's the thing they teach you: you you break in a straight line, and then you accelerate going around out of coming out of the turn. If you yeah. don't want to be breaking while you're turning, and right. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think of those mindsets of, um, yeah, at some point, you know, you, you've got to kind of hit the brakes 
and engage people into the curve, into the change, right. and then accelerate out of it. That's an interesting parallel now that you make me think of it. Yeah. And, and when I know I even have a hard time doing that, it's like, I just want to get started. Well, no, take your time, you know, pull the, pull the team together, pull the group together, let everybody have their say, even if it takes a day, and then you're going to move forward so much quicker, so much faster once everybody's had their say and is in alignment with what you're doing. Yeah. So, well, Mark, this has been just a great conversation. Well, thank you. No, it sounds like there's a lot of alignment between the work you do and um, the types of things I've um, been involved with in my career. So it's really good to be able to have that conversation with you. Yeah. Uh, it's, I just love having these conversations. And is there any last thing that you want to want to say? Well, I mean, I think, you know, kind of bring things back um, to one of the core themes of my podcast, my favorite mistake is, you know, I think we, you know, we're trying to um, help normalize the idea that we all make mistakes, whether we admit them or not. And, you know, I've interviewed um, some very successful people who um, have the strength and the courage to be vulnerable and tell a story. Sometimes, you know, I mean, you know, these are stories they're um, somewhat embarrassed by, but thankfully enough time has passed where like, you know, the sting is gone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's, it's powerful when people share these stories and then we can reflect on our own mistakes and maybe be a little more forthcoming about making mistakes uh, and then think about what we do in an organization to create a culture where people feel safe bringing up mistakes because they know they're not going to be blamed, um, that the organization and their leaders and their teammates are going to work together to identify um, what we can do to prevent that sort of mistake in the future. How do we learn from it mm-hmm. and, and keep moving forward? I think that's such an important aspect of continuous improvement and you know, that's why I've really enjoyed doing that new podcast series. And, and it makes me think about my own mistakes. And, um, you know, and, 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 and you know, it said, it's, it's often said, you know, we, we learn through mistakes. So if we want to talk about learning, we have to also talk about our mistakes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a t-shirt out at, so I'm, I'm in the Washington DC area and there's at the air and space museum out West of DC, there's a shop in there and there's a shirt and I look at it and it's, it always, it says failure is not an option. Yeah. And it's like, I get from their standpoint that final failure is not an option. Cause that's a really big, you know, when they launch a rocket ship with, with people on it, failure is not an option. Right. But it's like, you want to fail fast and furious in the beginning. Exactly. To look at life as, Failure is not an option, just stops, stops us from looking. So get those mistakes out. Try, you know, do the continuous improvement. Some things are not going to work. Some things are going to work and, and keep moving forward. Well, and the other thought I would add is, you know, the thing I've learned, um, you know, from Toyota mentors is, um, you know, it's fail fast. You want, if you're going to, you, you want to test change at a small scale. Mm-hmm. or to be challenged. What's the smallest possible test of change? That way, if it doesn't go exactly as you expected, you're mitigating 
the risk. And I think the same would be true. I'm speaking out of my element about something like um, aerospace, but they do so much testing in a way that minimizes the risk. Um, yes. Test firing engines in, in different ways and, and doing test, 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 test. And there are, of course, you know, as we know, um, in the space program, sadly, there, there have been failures. Um, and, and sometimes those failures come as a result of um, people in power not listening to the lessons learned by people um, closer mm -hmm. to where the work is done. So that's maybe something else to reflect on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Listen to your people as leaders. Sure. Well, thank you, Mark. This has been great. And well, thank you. I look forward to maybe another conversation in the future. I would certainly be open to that. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Leadership Reimagined. Now is the time to reimagine your leadership. Take a minute and go to reimagineyourleadership.com and I'll call you. We'll have powerful conversations. You'll take action. Yes, there are always actions to take. Your business will expand and I guarantee you'll have fun at the same time. I know, shouldn't it be fun? If it's not fun, why are you doing it?